Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have the uh, author of Psychedelic Information Theory, which uh, is a pretty cool book. And uh, there's some some of it is available online. And I've actually used some of the ideas from uh, his work to uh, kind of uh, come up with some other ideas. Basically, if you've read the Flickr post that I've put out uh, quite a while ago now, uh, it's basically inspired by his work. So uh, this is uh, James Kent. Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. This is James Kent. I'm calling from Seattle, or logging in from Seattle. The quirky science. Nice, yes. And, uh, right, yeah. Um, I'll just give you a little background on psychedelic information theory. I published it in 2010, and all of it is available online. You can find a PDF for all of the chapters are available online at psychedelicinformationtheory.com. And it's basically a culmination of all of the underground research I did in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s with hallucinogens, uh, basically tryptamines, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, DMT, and ayahuasca, ayahuasca admixtures as well, um, to study my own brain, study the way hallucinations work, study basically the limits and levels of perception and how perception can be hacked or subverted to create new types of perception, such as hallucination or geometric grids and fractal patterns. And psychedelic information theory is an examination of the physiology of the brain and why hallucinogenic chemicals cause the brain to produce these states and these novel types of perception. So it was kind of a very ambitious work to put together. But in retrospect, I spent about 20 years doing it. So um, I'm not surprised that people find it useful. It's uh, It was really sort of my life's work up to that point. So thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so I'm curious... This, uh, this is not actually what I had for the first question, but you've already gotten me interested. So, so what do you think about, I've, I've heard some people say that geometry and those kind of visual patterns are some kind of, uh, in effect, based on the structure of either like the eye or the visual cortex and different things like that. Is that what you think is going on or do you think it's something different? Well, there, so there has been some research done on this, and I do talk about it uh, in Psychedelic Information Theory. 
about uh, entoptic hallucinations, which sometimes uh, originate as phosphenes or it's just sort of blobs or pulses or patterns of light that are seen closed eye, sort of like um, a chemical saturation in the eye that you can see, like if you put pressure on your eyes, uh, if you close your eyes and press your finger against your eyelid, your eye will, your perception will produce these sort of light blobs or light flickers. Those are called phosphenes. The way that they um, morph into more high detail geometric structures, I believe does have to do with the function of the translational mapping from the retina, which is sort of spirals and cones, to the grid-like structure of the visual cortex, which is, the visual cortex is basically set up in grids. Um, it's not exactly pixels, but it's more like fill areas, filled, filling areas in the visual cortex. Um, and that translational mapping from spirals to grids can break down if there is um, stress or trauma on the optic nerve. And that's what causes those phosphenes. And that's what causes the phosphenes to, you know, become more, what, what, what's, what's the word? <laughs> more pronounced in hallucination because there's more activity being pushed into the visual cortex from the optic nerve. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Because of a, because of a state of... Um, sort of uh, artificial excitation caused by the, by the hallucinogen. So the optic nerve starts generating more noise than usual, and that noise, the visual cortex tries to create a pattern out of those, that noise. It's looking for pattern, and it's actually doing predictive pattern matching on the noise coming from the optic nerve. And that predictive pattern matching produces grids and tunnels and spider webs and funnels and you know blooming flowers and all of those kind of geometric kaleidoscopic images we associate with sort of low to mid-tier psychedelic hallucination. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think that makes some sense and um, this idea of Artificial excitation is particularly interesting because uh, there are certain kind of toys, I suppose, that one can use uh, without the effects of, like, say, psychedelics, like uh, like videos that can induce certain, um, like, the drifting illusion mm -hmm. or the motion after effects. And uh, I, I kind of have been thinking that that this could be something like, uh, like, like I have sort of wondered if a lot of the effects that are observed like this, it's just like the amount of time or the level of excitation even needed to produce certain kinds of normal effects that can occur to people is kind of shortened in time. And also the threshold for which certain things like say, palinopsia, uh, like a visual trailing mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. It may kind of lower how much stimulation you need. Oh, a lot of the, um, a lot of the hallucinogens, a lot of the hallucinations or the, the illusions that you're talking about, like, let's take the, um, the dripping screen, right? Or if you're watching a scrolling screen and suddenly it stops, you can still sort of see it scrolling because the, um, the, the, 
patterns in the perceptual memory and the visual memory, they're not quick on and off. They build slow and then they decay slow. So when your brain starts adapting to scrolling, watching a scrolling image, when that scrolling image stops, your brain is just hitting the brakes and it will take 20 to 30 seconds for your brain to actually realize that no, we don't need to do predictive scrolling anymore. So once your brain gets into the mode of predictive scrolling, and it really takes about a minute, right? You, you watch these videos on YouTube and you have to watch the thing going on for a, like a minute. And then once it stops, you can see the, the, what, the afterburn or the after image of whatever the hallucinogenic effect is. And it usually is some sort of drift or dripping or melting or some sort of slow creeping in the periphery that you can get to sustain after the original stimulus is over. And that's like, and that's really kind of what allows progressive hallucination to happen is when you, when you talk about like a flicker hallucination, everybody understands the sensation of, you know, seeing a camera flash and then they have the after image of that flash burned on their retina so that when they close their eyes, they can still see the blob where the flash was. Or if, you know, you glance at the, st the sun and close your eyes, you can still see a bright burn in your visual field where the sun was. And that's because the release of the chemical from that intense sensation takes a long time to dissipate. It takes 20 or 30 seconds to dissipate and even up to a couple minutes to fully dissipate if it's like a bright burn on the retina. So when you look at flicker hallucinations, each flicker causes a kind of chemical release that takes about 15 or 20 seconds to fully fade from visual memory. And you're piling up flickers on top of each other at a rate of like four or five times a second, however fast your strobe light is going. And that creates these echoes of visual burn that are sort of bursting and decaying in your visual memory all at the same time. And those cause interference patterns. And interference patterns are very complex geometrical uh, constructs that everybody is familiar with. They're, um, they're just, you know, interesting and cool to look at. And that's why hallucination is, you know, sort of art deco and trippy. Oh. Yeah, that that is really fascinating. Um, so in the uh, the project's flicker, I kind of uh, I never actually realized the sort of thing that you're talking about right now. Like the thing the 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 part that I kind of got into was there's this stuff called cymatics and yeah, cymatics is very similar. Um, yeah, but it's vibrational, sure. Yeah, and so so for those of you who are watching the that that is a very weird word if you've never heard it right, <laughs> but it, so it's basically uh, people can take like a, a auditory signal and put it in like water or sometimes they use like sand and stuff and it creates all these uh, basically the kind of fractals that people might see on uh, like psychedelics or something and. Um, the other thing that kind of is interesting that you mentioned is this idea of the decay and right. uh, how long it takes for the effect to kind of saturate. Um, so the, the, where I basically went with this idea is looking at uh, different receptor types and 
actually looking at the timing that they take to uh, uh, like rise and decay. And so like right the, the reset the reset rate. Yeah. Or and uh, there, so there's like basically the ones that I focused on were uh, two glutamate receptors. There's the AMPA receptor, and then there's the NMDA mm-hmm. receptor. And then the AMPA receptor right. is basically the kind of quick fire, quick decay one. And then the NMDA is kind of more like a a learning mechanism. And so, or like I, I, I sh- that was too vague right there. But but basically, right. it's like a more delayed and. It might be an effect that kind of, I, I feel the role that it plays might be like if there's some stimuli that is consistent enough, uh, it might begin to activate NMDA receptors, and then you no longer have to rely on these kind of short fire bursts, and uh, right. that might be efficient or something like that. You're you're talking about predictive pattern matching. So when you get a certain signal coming through. Um, on the fast channel over and it's and it's um, sustained over a period of many seconds 20 or 30 seconds then the slow channel picks that up and starts to run a predictive pattern matching on all of the incoming signal to make sure that it is you know all timed up and synchronized and the way it does that is by a lot lot of predictive analysis the brain is doing predictive analysis on all the signal that's coming in to make sure that it's paying attention to the correct signal and filtering out the noise. So that slow pathway that you're talking about is really the way that the brain filters out the unneeded signal by amplifying persistent signal over time. And that one does take a lot longer to decay, exactly like you say. That is this way of conceptualizing it is so interesting to me because so so I haven't read your entire psychedelics theory thing but mm-hmm. information theory sure i kind of read it a really long time ago some of it and then mm-hmm. a couple years later i that like especially the idea of the patterns being kind of a resonance pattern um mm-hmm. that particularly stuck with me and i started to kind of go in all different directions and so one of the one of the ones one of the things that I've been kind of thinking about, like in terms of these, uh, these, like the short fire and these more long lasting uh, receptors is that we might start off with some kind of, so, so I kind of have this idea of temporal acuity where our brain might typically like, say if it was just like completely blank slate and we haven't learned anything or maybe, yeah, just kind of like a, even though that's not really realistic, but but in some kind of situation that is somehow so novel that we've never uh, figured out things, uh, I think that 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 we would first be highly aware of very acute periods of time uh, and kind of temporal events that are really like in a sense microscopic, and that. Uh, this kind of dynamic between the slow and the fast firing, it's kind of like, in a way, it can also help us calibrate, like, how much time do we even need to pay attention to? Because, like, there's only so much important events that occur within, like, small, tiny time frames. And, like, so, like, you can imagine that maybe if someone were to do some super fast-paced sports or something like that, that might somehow, like, uh, preserve 
the tendency to be aware of more minute spaces of time. But I think also people who take psychedelics, it might actually change the way that this happens so that uh, that it's kind of ramping up the awareness of those tiny spaces of time. And it maybe that could play a role in like time dilation, for example. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff going on there. Um, in time dilation is a really interesting one. But let's talk about even before we get into the psychedelic space. In normal perception, there is a great deal of difference in states between like active seeking. Like if you're up around looking for your keys or your phone or you're lost or you're in a hurry. That is like a very highly present attentive state where every millisecond that passes, you're sort of agitatedly paying attention to it with really intense focus. And there's, you know, we can talk about norepinephrine and cortisol and different stress chemicals that keep you in that state. But there's a very big difference between that state and then say, you know, getting on the bus or the subway and then sitting down and realizing, oh, I've got 30 minutes now until I get to my destination. And then you can just drop into a rhythm. Right. And when you drop into a rhythm, the sense of time sort of disappears because you know how long you're going to be in the rhythm and your body will let you sort of just drift into that rhythm. You know, people get into road hypnosis when they're driving or you sit down in a movie theater and the movie comes on and you realize, OK, I've got an hour and a half to sit here. And you just drop into a low rhythm where time passes in a much more leisure, leisurely way where you're not paying attention to every second. Um, on psychedelics, the release of stress chemicals from the from the brainstem is significant. Um, there's a lot of um, norepinephrine or noradrenaline being released that pushes you completely into the present moment, where almost every object you look at has a new importance or a new fascination or a new depth of understanding to it. And there's also, a, strangely paradoxically parts of your brain in the frontal lobe that help you pass help you judge how much time is passing are almost completely offline so even though you're completely immersed in every second pass passing you sort of lose the ability to understand how much time is passing while you're in that state and so you get these weird sens sensations of being like in an infinite timeless space where everything is happening all at once and you lose context for what everything is and how it got here or why it's here and it all becomes new again right like you don't you don't understand what it is until you can observe it very closely and when you observe it very closely you realize oh this cup is way more fascinating than i thought it was it was you know and you see all sorts of <laughs> strange deep and wonderful things about a mundane object that you would have normally ignored uh, just because your brain is in that heightened state of um seeking right it's it's active seeking when you're in a psychedelic state or a highly a highly agitated or highly aware psychedelic state you're pushed into that seeking for stimulus and then the higher you get and you start to hallucinate your brain is like an um it's like an entropy machine and there's so much noise in there it's it's consuming so much energy it's looking for a sink right that energy is looking for some place to sink into and once you find a pattern that's easy to pull out of the noise, the brain naturally sinks into that because it's a, it's a lower energy state, 
right? When you drop out of the act of seeking in the noise and you find a pattern that you can actually sustain, that's a lower energy state and a more efficient and more focused state. So that's when like the deep hallucination starts happening. When you start like vibing on whatever's coming out of your own mind and you get into this progressive loop of animated visuals and fractals that just keep going and then pulling in bits of your memory that lap and, you know, feedback on each other with this sort of echo effect. That's, that's the sort of where you just lose track of all time altogether. Yeah, that is really cool. So I, I want to ask, so we have these receptors, right? The whatever mm-hmm. receptors that the drug binds to, uh, even if we don't assume that it's 5-HT2A, uh, whatever it's doing, we have mechanisms for these kind of uh, effects, presumably not to be blasted like that, but, um, well, I think that's potentially debatable. Like, like, so I feel, yeah, I think, I think there's probably a very good reason from an evolutionary biology standpoint that we have, you know, evolved the protective mechanism of hallucinating our way out of danger. But, um, you know, that's a that's a much more lengthy discussion that um, I can only speculate on. I don't think anybody is the authority in that subject, but I do believe that dreaming and producing hallucinations in states of crisis are a way of sort of emergency problem solving of a type that, that the brain has evolved to do. What do you think about the lower doses, like before that happens? What do you do? You have an idea of what? kind of evolutionary purpose that might serve? Well, we're, you're talking about like um, a very, uh, like a, are you talking, well, I guess there's, di- when it comes to microdosing, there's different sorts of things that are going on because you can microdose where you have almost no effect. If you're going a little bit higher, it becomes almost like a stimulant effect, like a speed Um, And then if you go a little bit higher and you're not quite hallucinating yet, it can become very clinical and introspective. And I don't know. I mean, I think we're, we're just kind of hacking different features of the brain to get the things that we want. Like our brain has an adaptive mechanism called mania, which is if you're going without food or or sleep for a couple days, like say you're hunting game and you have to run and chase chase game for um, two or three days without eating or sleeping, your body goes into a high activity state um, where your senses become super clear and your thoughts race and every sensation, uh, you know, your hearing, your smell, everything becomes like super clear and super crisp because you need to catch that food to eat or you're going to die. So your your brain has a protective mechanism that pushes you into these states. But then when, you know, you go a little bit farther and you're fasting and you're starving in the desert and you're about to die, your brain will hallucinate angels or um, mm. deities or something, a protective spirit to come to you and say, hey, get up, you're dying. You need to, you need to fix this, go find water. Right. And that's kind of a protective mechanism to keep you from, you know, just fading out (laughs) without Hmm. your brain telling you, without your body telling you to just, you know, get, you know, snap out of it. 
And this is, you know, you look at all of these uh, reports of people seeing angels and spirits when they're in crisis situations like, oh, I got in a car crash. And then I suddenly an angel came down and said, get out, get out, get out. And I got out and that, that saved my life. And it's like, well, yeah, that was your body telling you to run. That's like your fight or flight instinct presenting itself into your visual memory as a as a as a person right telling you to do something to save your own life i think that's definitely a protective mechanism of the brain to uh to to make us do things maybe against our better judgment because it's it's necessary for our survival yeah hmm. i actually so my kind of perspective so one of the things i feel that the state of i guess psychedelia is kind of for, in a sense, I think it's for, well, I think at least one of the reasons. So like there's, there's probably a lot of reasons, like the ones that you just outlined, I think are also true. Um, so I feel that in a context of novelty and so like, especially in the case of infants, I have a feeling that they are basically just constantly tripping until they form something uh, less trippy and presumably more like closer to what an adult might experience. Um, yeah, and I think I there's feel like, some truth to that. Yeah, like in a sense, I feel like it can, it perhaps like in the stimulation of something new, uh, we experience like a, a kind of a, something that reduces our tendency to cling on to what we already know and kind of immerse more into the present moment and figuring out how does this new thing work and how does it how do we assimilate it into the boring and the familiar in the past right um i think yeah, what, you what think? you're talking but when I I tried to explain this to somebody recently and it and and I and the sort of a new metaphor or a new way of understanding it came to me is that when you're a child, when you're in, you're in early development stages, you have no context for anything that you come across. So everything is new and has to be discovered completely in a vacuum, right? Without words or preconceptions of what it is or where it came from or what it's used for, right? Children just, you know, have to kind of make things up as they go along until they understand the context, the bigger context for all of these things. And once you understand the context, that's sort of, you know, your loss of innocence, right? You realize, oh, things don't just magically appear from, from nowhere, from Santa Claus, yeah, right? right? There's, it's all, it's all, a, it's all, you know, it's all prefabricated. Reality is all prefabricated. It's not magic. So you lose the context the older you get. But when you take psychedelics and you have this sort of extreme interruption of the frontal lobes and sometimes what people call ego death or transcendence or loss of identity, when that stuff goes away, you also lose all the context for everything that you've learned. Right? So things do become new again, like you're in a childlike state because those, those contextual pieces are sort of offline temporarily. Right? You, can, you can recall them if you really need to. If you really struggle during the psychedelic state to recall context, you can bring it back. But one of the most joyful things about the psychedelic state is when that context completely disappears and something as simple as like, you know, splashing in a puddle on the sidewalk suddenly becomes magical again, like you're a child and you realize, oh, this is amazing and fun, right? Water is amazing and fun. 
And just something as simple as that is yeah. <laughs> something you lose as an adult. You lose the amazingness of, of something as simple as just water, right? Yeah. <laughs> or so sound. True. Like you make sounds with your voice and it's like, oh, I forgot how interesting sound is. Right? We just get so used to blah, 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 sound, 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 or music, music, music. And then when you're on psychedelic, sounds are all new again, right? Even the sounds of cars or birds chirping or crickets or something, they just become fascinating. Like, wow, I never realized how rich that sound is because you learn to ignore that stuff the older you get. It doesn't, doesn't seem new anymore because you've already contextualized things into, into little boxes. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. What do you think of what if what if we this is one of the questions I listed here and it's probably like a really I don't know who knows this question could be stupid <laughs> but um, what do you think well no I'll word it in a way that sounds less ridiculous actually uh, what if what will happen if we just slowly reasonably introduce uh, psychedelics to much of society like what if 60% of people frequently or semi-frequently use them what do you think society would look like after that i don't know that it would be too different i feel like people put a lot of weight on how you know massive use or massive adoption of psychedelics will transform things and i'm more of the mind that it's not really quantity it's quality <laughs> so you, tell, you say, well, what if we give psychedelics to 60% of the people? What's going to change? And it's like, I don't know. But if within that 60% of the people, there's like five people who are sort of like dormant geniuses who are suddenly turned on by this event and they, they somehow, they somehow self-activate or self-actualize and start becoming, you know, activists in the world to produce change then those five people could probably do more to transform the world than just blanket giving people psychedelics. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. It's really, it's really focusing the effort where you think the results are going to come from. And you can do a shotgun effect and just give it to everybody. And, you know, there could be dor <laughs> dormant geniuses out there everywhere, like in the rural farmlands or, you know, <laughs> in the inner cities or anywhere in high in luxury high rises, spoiled rich brats who don't think that they have anything to give to society may suddenly become turned on and realize that they do have something to offer. Um, I, you know, the shotgun effect, I think that you might run into the law of unintended consequences and you yes. might get a lot of also people who are just sort of directionless or adopt weird mystical ideas or become delusional or megalomaniacs or, you know, all of the yeah. other things that can happen when you do take psychedelic drugs. Um, not every person is a dormant genius waiting to be turned on by psychedelic drugs. Some people are sort of sketchy and borderline to begin with. <laughs> and yeah, definitely. When you do psychedelic drugs, it just sort of makes, it sort of unbottles something, um, you know, and I might have been one of those persons, one of those people, oh, really? right? Sometimes... Sometimes, sometimes, right, sometimes the sketchy person who's borderline is also a dormant genius, right? And then you have to really look out for those people because they could become supervillains. Oh, man. Is that's where you're headed? Oh, uh, potentially, yeah. Uh, we'll see. Hmm. 
Hmm, yeah, yeah, that's my career path. Is uh, I, I have a few options, really. Uh, super villain is one, but uh, uh, underground academic is usually is is basically where I'll stay for the short the short term. What if there was a day where people just collectively took them and or like even weirder what if there was a day where people took not oh, a day a week like a festival just <laughs> like a festival a festival yeah. day yeah that would be great I think that's an amazing idea do you think hmm. that could be transformational for sure yeah, I think if everybody was on board at the same time you could, you could really I talk a little bit in, in pit uh, psychedelic information theory about like creating group mind through synchronizing Neural events, like patterns of neural events, synchronizing brain waves or thought patterns, creates a kind of networked group mind, not like a fully telepathic or psychic group mind, but something that's bonded through behavioral uh, mechanisms. You could synchronize an entire planet if people were on board with that. You know, if they were all taking it at the same time and their brains were all kicked in together and they came out of the trip at the same time, everybody would be like the entire world would be waking up to a brand new day together. Yeah, <laughs> right? really. With this weird vision of how it's all supposed to go. That, that, would be, that would be incredible. I think, what was it? You said, uh, never mind, I lost it. I was going to say something, though. Um, oh, what if... Um, nah, I don't know. That was a weird blip in my head. Um, but, uh... I definitely feel like um, taking psychedelics in a festival culture, like when you go to something like Burning Man or a rave or um, Bonnaroo or any one of these you know, big festivals... I think those are probably, for me, some of the best places to do it. Because oh, really? That sounds so contrary is, to what most people say. There is so much public energy to vibe off of. And if, there is, if it's a space that's you know, pro-drug and pro-experimentation and you do start to freak out, there are resources there. You know, there are people mm. there who know how to manage that. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> you can turn to almost anybody in the crowd and go... I'm really high on acid and I'm freaking out. Can you help me? And they'll be like, yeah, no problem, brother. Right? You know? Yeah, seriously, it's interesting. <laughs> so, so it's very different than being in like even an ayahuasca ceremony where everybody's like super serious and like down with the spirit. And um, I, I, I have heard um, many instances of people in ayahuasca spaces or, or sort of ceremonial spaces feeling like um, the seriousness or the tone of the space where they were doing it didn't give them the freedom to say like, Hey, I'm freaking out or be spontaneous or do something fun and experimental uh, because everybody wants you to follow the protocol of the ceremony. And if you're in a, if you're in an experimental place like burning man, then, then, you know, basically the, the lid is off the, what is acceptable behavior. Right? Yeah, it's like a it all space. becomes acceptable up to a point where you're like assaulting people or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. hmm. so so i really enjoy those spaces because there's a lot more um spontaneity there's a lot more sense of excitement and danger and uh sort of a feeling that anything can happen and that's when i get like the like the biggest sparking of ideas in my brain if i'm just by myself uh at home or hiking those are interesting but not always rewarding experiences 
Um, and I don't, and I've been in a few ceremonial experiences and I'm not really interested in them because they are rather long and boring, I guess. There's not a lot that goes on. So I'm really more, I really am. I mean, when it comes to like psychedelics and the therapeutic model, I'm like, yes, if it can help people in that model and that clinical model where you go into a therapist's office and you lie down on a couch with a blindfold and you listen to music and that works for you, then, then great, do that. But for me, I'm really more about like, let's just go into the spaces where the experimental thinking, and this, you know, the experimental behavior is happening because there's, there's a lot of, you know, energy there or synergy there that, that just sort of boosts everything to like a more creative or more fun level. Do you think that, um, so one of the things that I believe is that perhaps they disrupt certain forms of memory that guides like our tendency to like behave and think and do all the things as we normally do and that it might be disrupting it and then it's kind of like our experience is unlocked to uh so that it can kind of just do a lot of things that it is not that that are like kind of outside of our constant predictions and expectations of things and so like like you know, I've had experiences where I I used to not laugh almost at all, and then on the on a like trip I did, and I didn't actually like think about it that I was laughing when I usually am like always not doing that right. I'm always avoiding it because of uh, certain experiences that I had like a really long time ago, and um, so I'm curious like if you think that, and also I'm curious. Uh, at the same time, what do you think the therapeutic, like, why did, why are they therapeutic at all? What do you, what do you think about those two things? Well, laughing is a great one. And, uh, it's funny because, uh, I don't know if you've read Andy Letcher's book shroom. It's sort of an, uh, an underground book. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically he's from the UK and he went back to see if he could find like historical reports of people doing mushrooms in Europe um, through antiquity and medieval times, because there was so much of this, um, you know, reporting going on. Like there's a secret mushroom cult in the Catholic Church and, you know, Jesus was a mushroom. And there's, you know, all, all the Freemasons and secret orders of Europe have been doing mushrooms forever. And if you go back and analyze paintings, you can find mushrooms in old paintings and there's crypto crypto mushroom symbols and all of these uh, religious texts. And Andy Letcher basically went back to see if there were any historical records of anything like that. And he did not find that. But what he did find were some interesting reports of people who mistakenly picked psychedelic mushrooms, thinking that they were edible, non-poisonous mushrooms, and ate them in things like soups or gruels or barleys and things like that. And then would show up at the local apothecary <laughs> with their family, all laughing their asses off with huge grins on their face. Oh, that's <laughs> right? beautiful. They, had, they called it, they called it um, rictus, right? They called it rictus when you have a smile on your face that won't disappear. This was something that that happened to people in ancient time. They didn't, ancient times, uh, let's say a few hundred years ago, they diagnosed this as as like hysteria and rictus and as a result of mushroom poisoning. Uh, 
So some of the earliest reports of people like tripping out were <laughs> reports of people showing up at the apothecary in the middle of the night, laughing their asses off with permagrins, um, saying, ah, we've all been poisoned and we're dying, doctor. <laughs> what can you do to help us? <laughs> and it's just the craziest accounts, right? And you go, yes, that's exactly what happens. This, this is, they think they're dying, but they can't stop laughing. And uh, it's crazy. <laughs> so yeah i think that's that's the um i don't know what it is specifically pharmacologically about the psychedelic experience that makes the absurdity of our existence so like 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 forefront but i think that you know we wander around in our eight bodies taking ourselves so seriously and everything is like so important and we have our identities that we got to keep and we've got like goals and we've got, you know, responsibilities and things and people that we need to keep in contact with. And then you take psychedelics and for some reason, all of that stuff comes like, what the, why am I, why am I, why am I spending so much time thinking all of this is so important? Why, why, you know, and this, the sort of absurdity of existence uh, just becomes apparent. And I don't know exactly what the pharmac pharmacological reason is for that. I think it is kind of this lack of context or being pushed back to a childlike state before you were told everything has to be so important. Um, so laughing is, you know, one of the ways that the body releases stress. Right. That's mm. that's one of the things that laughing is, is like there's a all comedians study this. Like, how do we build a joke that causes stress? And then you release <laughs> yeah, that stress at the punchline. You release that stress at the punchline and suddenly the audience is on board and ha 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 out comes out comes the stress. So if you find yourself laughing on mushrooms, it's probably because you've been repressing this laughter for so long or you've been under so much stress. And suddenly Ooh. you're in a space where that stress can just go out. And it leaves in, in the form of laughter. So now, in terms of psych... Yeah, go ahead, and then we can get back to psychedelic therapy later. Oh, I was just going to say... Yeah, laughter is crazy. I've, I've seen people in huge laughing fits on mushrooms. I notice I haven't had that kind of experience for, like, a really long time now, and it's kind of weird, but I also haven't been, like, taking, like, a huge amount or anything, but it was enough that it was Ooh. crazy. Um... But I don't know, like, do you think that's something that is especially prominent in like early experiences, but then it might like, do you think you build tolerance to that? I don't know. I mean, I think that with almost all experiences in life, there's a law of diminishing returns. Like, yeah. you know, heroin is never as good as the first time you do it or crack cocaine is never the first, as good as the first time you do it. Or, you know, jumping out of an airplane, skydiving, never is ex as exciting as the first time you do it. So I think that there might be part of that going on. Um, I've also noticed that the older I get, the tone of my trips change. Uh, when I was younger, it was a lot easier for me to just sort of detach and laugh about everything. But the older I get, the more I, you know, sort of worry about you know, the planet and family things. And, yeah, totally. You know, our nation and <laughs> geopolitics and, the, you know, the future of humanity. And I get like a lot deeper and more philosophical now. And it is kind of harder to laugh that off. But I will say that those are just the trips that I take alone. If I'm like mm -hmm. out hiking with people, 
people or in like an adventurous space like Burning Man, then it's a lot easier to detach and laugh because you can just say, you know what, for the moment, I don't need to think about all of that stuff because I'm, I'm recreating. I am here to enjoy myself and that's what I'm going to do. And uh, getting into that recreational mind space where you can just allow yourself to have fun without worrying about what you have to do the next day or deadlines or family problems or whatever. I think allowing yourself that space is just, is really important. Um, uh, Not just in for psychedelics, but overall, uh, in terms of balancing mental health. So you were going to say something about the therapeutic effects, I think. So yeah, why is psychedelic therapy effective? Is, is the yeah, question? Yeah, it doesn't or? have to be about chemicals or anything, but uh, like, because I know some people believe that, like, if you were to focus on your traumas during the experience, that this is helpful. But I'm not actually necessarily convinced of that. Although I think it's possible like it's i've experienced benefits not from doing that and i think it's possible that you could maybe accelerate the benefits by doing that kind of focused thinking on like traumatic memories i guess but i don't know if i actually am convinced that it's necessary so like what do you think about that type of stuff well in terms of like um memory softening i think is what the, the the technical term is when dealing with trauma and trying to uh, reduce the impact of the memory of the trauma on, um, you know, the anxiety response. Yeah. I think the I think the majority of work in this area is being done with MDMA. Yeah. Which releases a lot of serotonin and oxytocin and puts mm-hmm. the puts the patient into a safe space where recalling the memory doesn't actually produce the anxiety. So getting the patient to the point where they can recall the traumatic event without the anxiety response and then having them what's called reconsolidate that memory, reconsolidate that memory with the softer focus, that memory recall and consolidation basically re-imprints the traumatic memory with a softer, less traumatic memory of that memory, if, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, I do. So I do that work's being done with MDMA, and people have been doing that with hypnotherapy and a variety of different means for a while. But MDMA seems to do it really well because it puts people in this emotionally safe space where they feel safe sharing, right? They feel safe and vulnerable, and they can make that emotional connection with the therapist. Um, you wouldn't want to do that on mushrooms, though. That's you wouldn't want to do thinking. that on LSD. What if you, you like freak spiral out? And you could spiral into a freak out, and the therapist would have to be very good at keeping you on that tightrope without, yeah. <laughs> without spiraling. Right, where MDMA is sort of has a built-in safety net to it. Um, yeah. Other types of psychedelic therapy, like treatments for anxiety and depression and OCD and um, some forms of PTSD, can do with the, the thing that we're looking at with mushroom therapy right now, or that the, the experts are looking at with mushroom therapy right now, is seeing that if mushroom therapy can promote new neural growth in the adoption of new behaviors or new routines in the wake of mushroom therapy. Yeah. Um, yeah I like that. So, a lot of people with depression, they lose the ability to you know, create synaptic growth. They, they can't perform behaviors. They can't learn new patterns. They can't, get, they can't snap out of their depressive routines. The hope is that if you give somebody the, the, the psilocybin and that promotes a whole lot of activity in the brain that generates neural growth, 
that will kick the person out of their, their, their depression and give them the short-term tools they need to build new routines, like like stopping smoking, for instance, building new routines around not smoking, as opposed to just falling back into the same routines again. And in theory, you should have more than one session. You should have like one session, uh, like a primary session, and then another session two or three weeks later to um, reinforce the learning from the first session. But that these are all new protocols. No one, no one really knows how this is going to pan out until there's a lot more uh, application in in clinical therapy. Yeah. So I'm curious, what has your journey been like in your project, the psychedelic information theory? Like, uh, how did it start? Um, you said 20 years. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. When I got into the field, I was about 21 years old, and I was sort of turned on by Leary, and um, I was an acid head. I was following the Grateful Dead around for a while. And then Terrence McKenna rolled through the scene, and everybody was getting into DMT and ayahuasca and sort of spirits, and this whole idea about spirits and plant spirits and channeling a spirit world or a hyperdimensional space became like the cutting edge thing and i was like hmm i want to i want to check this out i mean that's really where it came came out of my whole fascination with psychedelics was like let's see if there's anything to this spirit space thing and um i i wound up publishing some magazines in the 90s trip magazine and psychedelic illumination magazine because this is pre-internet just as a way of like meeting people and networking through the scene and like figuring out what's going on and uh I really did some hardcore experimentation with uh, mushrooms and ayahuasca and DMT and was like summoning entities, <laughs> like talking with spirits and like trying to figure out what's going on here. And um, after about five or six years, I realized that I was really kind of doing some damage to my brain. I mean, I had some like wake up mm. moments where I was like, I was like, I shouldn't be you know, like this close to psychosis in my normal everyday life. I think there's really something going on with my brain and I need to back off everything. So I backed off the drugs for a while and I came back to my senses. And then when I got back into psychedelics a couple of years later, it was from a much more neuroscientific standpoint. It was like, okay, I'm going to learn pharmacology. I'm going to learn neuroanatomy. I'm going to learn receptor profiles. I'm going to study the ins and outs of perception and figure out how these substances actually alter the signaling pathways of the brain, the perceptual signaling pathways of the brain. And it took me about another five years of doing that kind of research to come up with what was psychedelic information theory or what is psychedelic information theory, um, which was kind of a piecing together of everything that I learned. So basically, once I started studying the neurophysiology of the brain and understanding how perception works and then understanding how dreaming works, which is the second part of, you know, how the brain creates internal imagery. Once I understood, you know, uh, you know waking perception and dreaming perception, I sort of realized that the whole context for this spirit world metaphor was a lack of understanding about how the brain produces these effects. And yeah. I, I basically turned myself from a spiritualist into an atheist by studying neuroscientists, by, by studying neuroscience. <laughs> That's interesting. Right? 
And now whenever somebody makes all of these spiritual claims, I think back about myself when I was in the state where I was like chasing spirits and like trying to find spirit worlds. And I look back on myself and think, man, I was insane back then. <laughs> I, mean, I was like yeah. in some, I was like on some other level voodoo shamanic worlds uh, tip, right? I was like, I was like in this, this sort of freak out psychic zone for probably four or five years of my life. And, um, this is when I was tripping almost, you know, every week or every other week. And there was periods of time where I was taking ketamine every day and um, I would take voluminous notes, right? This is all research, research, research. I'm doing research, but um, I was also publishing magazines at the time and working a full-time job. So I was out of my head. I don't even know what was going on in my life, but the, the psychedelics really um, made me extremely productive and extremely curious and, uh, uh, really be, just became my passion until um, I wrote the book. And when I wrote the book in 2010 and published it, I was like, well, I guess I'm done with that. <laughs> hmm. so I felt like of, I... What do you think? Uh, of, sorry, this is like totally like just a different ahead. topic, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, what do you think of dreaming? Yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating topic. Um, that's what, basically why I got into psychedelics is because I've always been a very um, intense, lucid dreamer. Even as a child, I would have like intense, lucid dreams where I would be self-aware in my dreams and would be able to do things like, you know, fly or float around off the ground or uh, jump really high or jump up to, you know, to the top of buildings and things like that. Um, and it always really fascinated me that um, and this is really this is really how I got into it. And this is crazy is that when you're dreaming, your sense of gravity disappears. I mean, at least for me. And that's just something that I uh, realized as you're falling asleep, you can almost feel your sense of gravity disappearing. Like you can get into this hypnagogic state where you feel like you're floating. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in why does the body's sense of gravity disappear while you're sleeping? Because if you think about it, when you're dreaming, if you're in a dream, you're upright and walking around and doing stuff. Then in reality, you're lying down on your back with your head being pulled into the ground. And you don't feel any of that in your dream. So that was kind of like, <laughs> as a kid, that just that one question led me into all sorts of like paranormal sigh and dream studies and you know remote viewing and out-of-body experiences and back in the 70s and 80s all of this parapsychology stuff was very um new and fresh so that one that one question is really what kind of got me into the whole study of uh, perception and psychedelics etc and i don't know that i would have ever taken psychedelics if i hadn't read that they help produce vivid dreamlike states. And I was like, oh, but this is something that I understand. I, I want that. I want to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, dreaming is, um, you can call it memory consolidation or predictive analysis, like scenario running. You're running, your brain is running yeah. scenarios in the background all the time. And when you're dreaming, those scenarios become like contextualized. Like, oh, let's run this scenario in this place with these people. Or let's run this scenario here with this, you know, with these variables. But it doesn't really account for like the weirdness. You know, the brain has a way of just like coming up with the weirdest stuff in dreams. And, uh, you know, it sort of defies rationality sometimes when you think about it. But it's, it's, um, 
know, like I said, it's some sort of protective mechanism. It's something that we've evolved to do to allow us to have, um, I think a lot of, I think people, um, I think there's a correlation between depression and dreaming where the less physical stimulus you get during the day or the, the less sensory stimulus you get during the day, the more your brain produces sensory stimulus at night to make up for the lack of, you know, whatever it is that's, that's going on outside. Um, so your brain, even if your body is like completely cut off in a black box, right? You're in an isolation tank. Somebody's punishing you, right? You're being, you're being put in a gulag. Even if you're like in the worst possible physical conditions, brain will, will will step in and go no no we're going to create a fantasy land for you for a little while or you can go yeah. take a break yeah. <laughs> it's this weirdest thing it's the weirdest thing and uh, i always i always trip out on it i think dreaming is the craziest thing in the world i love it i would love to write a book on dreams but there's so much i don't know it's such a weird amorphous topic it's hard to even get a, a lever in on it like how do you even start it and i don't know yeah. it's fascinating subject but not a lot of people are doing very much research on dreaming there's not a lot of money in it i suppose so so basically what it seems like is the 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 sky goes dark right then then mm-hmm. melatonin like comes out of maybe our pineal gland or something like this right? and then yeah. we enter this crazy hallucinogenic trance every single day <laughs> of our lives <laughs> and then this is just it's just the just completely most normal thing like hey man i sorry but i i right now i have to go sit th- sit over there in the corner and just freak out for seven hours right <laughs> yeah it's really weird um you know what's even weirder is that uh like i was gonna make a joke post about this about uh sorry. the pineal gland and yeah. uh I don't know if you've heard, but so some reptiles, they have an actual third eye that responds to the color of the sky. Uh, Like if it's Mm -hmm. blue versus uh, dark, basically, or maybe red too, I forgot. But, um, and that connects to the pineal gland and is presumably what is helping to induce like sleep and wake cycles. So it's like, I don't know, it's like really weird. Like there, there is this kind of third eye and other species that induces crazy hallucinogenic things that allow the creature to simulate uh, a different reality that lets them kind of like psychically test the future or something like that. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to blow your mind here because the pineal gland isn't the, the pineal gland isn't the third eye. It's the first eye. It's the first eye. Oh man. Is it really like it's evolved first? Yeah, because oh, uh, organisms, uh, even even single cellular organisms, can tell the difference between light and dark. Right? Mm. That's one of the first the, the first things that organisms can feel is light and dark, heat and cold, and gravity up and down. Almost every organism understands these things at an innate level without even having a nervous system or a brain. Right. Right. And it's and it's and it's weird to think about that. But that is organism consciousness at its most fundamental level, being able to understand (laughs) the difference between light and dark, hot and cold and up and down. And, you know, and then amazingly, the direction of the closest food source. 
right? So yeah. Sometimes these organisms have like an innate understanding of where to go in their environment to find what they eat, even like bacteria, single cell organisms. So developing a, um, an organ that can sense light and dark and produce a hormonal response in, um, in you know, response to those changes is one of the first adaptive things that an organism learns to do. And that's, you know, the why well, I say the penile grind is the first eye, because you need to, you know, you're, an organism definitely needs to know th that information first before they need to get like full detailed stereotopic, stereotopic <laughs> readouts of what's going on everywhere around them. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely essential to everything that we do, like the circadian rhythms and the sleep like cycle and even like the attention cycle and you know getting sleepy at 3 30 in the afternoon or three in the afternoon every day um yeah that's all the pineal gland and we're all wired to those rhythms whether we understand it or not uh so the pineal gland is actually doing a lot more directing of our behavior than our actual eyes are our eyes sort of do like instantaneous behavioral changes but for like that long-term stuff the longitudinal stuff the pineal gland is kind of running the show. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting. Hmm. Have you heard? Yeah. I've seen these studies that I think they were saying that, well, it's like really funny. Like they're talking about the calcification of the pineal gland. And then mm -hmm. I think they found an effect that it decreases our ability to secrete melatonin. And then the researchers also, I think, simultaneously concluded that. It's fine, <laughs> which is like really weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, I haven't really studied that too much. I haven't really gone deep into like pineal gland calcification other than like the whole um, is DMT an endogenous byproduct of, of melatonin synthesis in the pineal gland, like uh, Rick Strassman says. And I think the, the conclusion after 20 years of research is, not really, but DMT yeah. is produced in plenty of other places in the body, so it's not really, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Also, uh, it's, it's not really my area of, of it's not my, my area of specialty, to be honest with you, but uh, it is interesting. I am interested about the whole penial calcification thing or whether there's any significance to it or not, so it's sort of an open question in my head. Hmm, yeah. Um... I sort of feel serotonin probably is psychedelic on its own, even without, like, say, DMT doesn't, like, well, there's, I guess, evidence that it probably would be in the body, I guess, but I think it wouldn't matter necessarily. I feel like it's, well, it depends. Like, there are other mechanisms that it has, apparently, like Sigma-1 agonism or something, yeah. uh, but I still feel serotonin itself like, if we're having, like, endogenous, somewhat psychedelic experiences, I think it could ex be explained by, like, even serotonin or, like, dynorphin or maybe other different things. Definitely disruptions in the serotonin signaling system are perceived as hallucinogenic. Um, people who take, like, there have been reports of people who take antidepressants like Paxil or Prozac that promote serotonin. Um, production or uh, reuptake, they delay reuptake, so there's more serotonin in the system. There are reports of people in the first two weeks of you know onboarding with an antidepressant, an SSRI, 
that they get like sort of like low level hallucinogenic responses as yeah, the serotonin the serotonin system is adapting to this new you know whatever this new wave of serotonin flooding um but i also think that there's um process by which you know neurons down regulate or up regulate depending on how much serotonin is in the system and this is why hallucinogens you know you can't take them every day because yeah. of, of, eventually your neurons will down regulate to the point where they're not reacting to the excess serotonin or they're not reacting to um you know the the introduction of this novel um modulator in the system um they're sort of they've, they've gone into a protective low power mode um until you know they can reset and then usually it takes a you know like a week or a couple of weeks for them to reset so you can trip again but yeah uh it's but those things are temporary like you know in those in the serotonin systems uh it's it's generally i think when the when the serotonin system is trying to recalibrate to new rhythms or um you know n- new noise in the serotonin signaling pathway that you start to get those trippy perceptual effects that we associate with hallucinogens but they can be produced other ways and interestingly in an opposite i don't know about opposite but in a contrary way uh, people who would take stimulants, it seems that they, it's almost like the opposite. Like they might not feel as crazy at first, but maybe over time they start to like hallucinate or something like that. Amphetamine psychosis. Yeah. It only takes about two days of being awake on amphetamines before you start to see like the dancing ants and the, yeah. you know, the creeping vine, like the spiders crawling up, you mean <laughs> crawling up your arms. Uh, yeah, and that's its own type of hallucination that has to do with neural fatigue, and um, the yeah the, the the pattern matching in the peripheral peripheral vision, like seeing something out of the corner of your eye, like thinking you see something out of the corner of your eye, is sort of one of the weirdest illusions or or like fleeting hallucinations people have. But if you're up for a couple of days on amphetamines, that becomes like your constant state of like seeing something out of the corner of your eye, seeing something creeping in, or yeah. <laughs> can't turn it off it becomes constant and that's you know why people show up in the emergency room saying that like there's there's uh you know a man in black clothes following <laughs> yeah. them and the time they turn around to see him they duck behind a corner right but they're there we can see him out of the corner of my eye uh yeah it's that's a kind of that's a kind of psychosis that i do not really want to explore but i fully understand uh because have you tried salvia oh yeah i've tried everything what do you i've tried everything salvia? except for yeah, I was, um, I was smoking the Salvinorin extract, the 20X, and it was pretty intense. I mean, I did a lot of experimentation with salvia. Um, it's, it's very intense physically. Uh, it, one of the things I loved about it immediately was that it does interrupt your sense of gravity. You feel like you're spinning or floating, right? Or, or um, at least I do. I feel, if I'm lying down and I smoke it, I almost feel like my body is tilting in space as it's coming on. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I was very fascinated because of that. And I was also fascinated because it had such a, has a, such a unique skin hallucination, like tactile hallucination across the skin, like being pecked by little bird beaks. Somebody <laughs> explained <laughs> all over the body or being hit, like being hit by BBs all over the body. Uh, very, very strange. It's so unique. Uh, nothing else quite like it. 
But the other thing that really freaked me out is it's the only drug I've ever taken where I smoke it and I immediately feel like there's a presence above my head watching me. Like I'm connected to the salvia mother. And like the second that the salvia starts to wear off, that presence goes and disappears. And I almost can tell the direction it's disappearing in. And, And I always think in my mind that wherever it's disappearing to, somebody else is smoking salvia there <laughs> right it just hops it just hops from mind to mind of whoever's smoking salvia dumps in their like mind looks, looks around right yeah what's going on here what's going on here nothing okay salvia is wearing off poof they're gone to the <laughs> to the next person like the blog. reaper it's like you're about to die or something weird it's like the signal of near death <laughs> I, I just call it Mother Salvia because I don't know what else to call it, but it's the only drug that I get that on, and it is very weird, and it happens almost every time. Even though I forget it's supposed to happen, like someone will hand me a bowl of salvia, and I'll be sitting around a campfire and smoke it, and I'll be like, oh, there's that thing again. What do you think and it I'll is? Be, like, what in the brain would do that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, there's, there, is a, there is a weird sensation. So there's this weird thing. There's this weird study that they did uh, – to produce, to reproduce the sensation that somebody's watching you or somebody's in the room with you. Or, um, you know, sometimes you get the feeling that there's like a ghost or somebody in the room with you or there's someone watching you or there's someone right behind you. And it has to do with, they found that it has to do with some sort of discrimination in um, tactile perceptual continuity. And it's this this really weird study that they did where they 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 put somebody in front of a mannequin and said poke the mannequin in the back, and when they poke the mannequin in the back, a mechanical finger pokes them in the back at the same time. Right, oh, so it's all linked up. So when you poke when you poke the mannequin in the back, you're poked in the back at the same spot at the same time. And when people do that, it's like oh yeah, that's cool, that's easy. But if they delay the second poke, the poke coming into your back by just a couple milliseconds it causes this weird sense of dissociation in the person that makes them feel like there's another person in the room touching them mm. right? and they and they get this overwhelming sensation that there's somebody else in the room with them just because this this sort of connected sensation has been disconnected by even just a few milliseconds like like 30 milliseconds or so crazy study and i was I like who even that. who even designed this study like who it's <laughs> so interesting yeah <laughs> but yeah i don't know what the i don't know what it is about the brain but there is like there is like a certain series of causal events that actually startles the brain into thinking i'm being watched or somebody's here with me or you know something like that and it, it is um you know like um deja vu nobody knows exactly what causes deja vu in the brain but you can almost reproduce it in an experiment uh it's one of those things that's very hard to study experimentally even though most people understand what it is um they're just so fleeting and hard to reproduce in a clinical setting i've sort of so in my experience with that kind of basically the same thing you described on salvia i've had that on thc actually and that's kind of the only time I've had it. And I, but there was something so peculiar about it that I don't even know what it was. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. It seemed like I gained a sense that I don't normally have. And 
I don't know. Like, have you have you had that experience where it feels like you've gained a different modality of like experiencing things? Like, as if, like, say you were never uh, heard sounds before, and you suddenly started hearing sounds or something like that. It's like a a weird phantom sense or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I, I would ever describe it like that. Um, it was kind of like a mix uh, of both. It was like a mix yeah. of an entity with also like some weird extra sense or something yeah like a transcendental consciousness or an, an overmind consciousness of some kind maybe i think i might i i think i've sensed stuff like that before i mean i've definitely felt like i had some kind of galactic brain or <laughs> galactic <laughs> overmind i don't know how much of that stuff is like <laughs> true verifiable I, I i often feel like all of that stuff is sort of like um magnified hallucinatory spaces but uh yeah like the thing no, I've, I've sort a mystical of, awareness is sort of valuable in the moment definitely feels like it has value yeah i feel like in what i've kind of come up with is that uh i feel like there could be uh different types of so like like something i looked into a little bit is like child consciousness and so there's things like like children seem to like it, it seems to be only children that have things like photographic memory and not adults but then there's also things like people with aphantasia where they lose the ability to think in their mind's eye like or visualize basically um but i want i like the thing i've been thinking is that it, it seems like our senses get really compressed as we age partly because we learn how to do it more efficiently like to abstract away from photographic memory because that seems like or even like videographic memory that's probably so inefficient to memorize all of that unnecessary detail and i feel like there's also layers of what we would normally see the world as that is kind of like how people say we remove the filters under some of these experiences i feel like it's kind of that uh, we might revert back to uh, different ways of processing that are that we've kind of deemed uh, not use not useful in adult life. Like so, one thing is like this this feeling of vibes on things, like where I can look at a scene and it seems like it's an art kind of piece or something, and it's like it seems like every line is intentional or something, and that it all has this perfectly understood shape or something like that. And normally, though, I don't feel like that. I feel like I just completely uh, don't. I don't know. It just feels like everything is arbitrary normally or something like that, maybe. Well, one thing I think about a lot is um, how animals think, right? Because yeah. they can't think in words. But they do do predictive analysis, right? They do yeah. think... Mm, I'm hungry. I'm going to go to where the food is and see if there's food there. Or I'm thirsty. I'm going to go. But they, they, they can't think that in words, right? They just have sensations. And then I am assuming they must have visualizations. Yeah, and I feel like uh, animal thinking must all be visual, must all be visual memory thinking because they don't have abstraction like symbols and language. So when you talk about children, like pre-verbal children, yeah. all of their pattern learning has to be visual. And or before they understand that sounds are symbols for ideas. Right. And that's usually, you know, somewhere around the age of two. 
right? Kids can start talking at, you know, the, the one, one and a half, but they're just, you know, parroting words, mama, dad, dad, blah, blah, blah. If, before yeah. it kicks into their brain that, oh, these sounds are, you know, symbols for abstract ideas. Once that starts happening, that memory becomes paramount and visual memory becomes less important, which is sort of a weird trade-off for abstract thinking is that abstract symbolic thinking means we lose a lot of our capacity for visual thinking because those muscles that mo- those muscles aren't important anymore right yeah. if we if those muscles if we didn't have that language layer our visual memory muscles i think would be extremely robust and we would have a, you know a, a much deeper visual thinking right and that's why a lot of i think i mean most people who have these photographic memories or deep sort of visual thinking they're sort of on the spectrum, right? They're a little yeah. bit autistic. Yeah. And that's because so much of their brain processing goes into this visual thinking where they're not really that interested in, in language thinking because the, that symbolic abstraction doesn't really make as much sense to them. Uh, so, yeah, it is a fascinating subject that I, that I, wish, I wish there was some way to write a, a book about the way animals think because it's something that I think about yeah. a lot. Like, how do you think without words? What, how does that process work? And it's just got to be deprive yourself, deprive yourself of words for like like three weeks or something and then see what happens. I go live in a cave like a hermit without speaking to anybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could, I don't know how you unwind your entire. (laughs) You go meditate. Like that's what they're doing when those crazy meditation retreats or something. Yeah, where everybody has to walk around blindfold and they're like smelling everything. (laughs) Yeah. we're gonna enhance your senses by denying your yeah whatever oh man yeah these there's all sorts of crazy experimentation none of you know there's a lot of stuff that's still sort of unanswerable and unknown but the you know the 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 mysteries of the human brain are sort of becoming less mysterious the farther we go so uh you know maybe there is maybe there will be some point in the future where people understand Oh yeah, really strong language imprinting at an early age, like the way we force children to learn now, is actually bad for the long-term visual memory. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. we give children a longer period of time to develop language skills, um, you know, instead of just like forcing them to conform at such an early age to, you know, use your words. That's what parents say to kids when they're like acting out and being use your words that force forcing you into a into a context of communicating. I bet uh, savantism is probably totally cases where they're forced back into, uh, or not even back, like in the case of damage, it is back into, but but there's like people with autism that are kind of born into savantism, I guess. But it could yeah. be like uh, the reliance on basically aspects of the mind that everyone else has just totally let atrophy or something. The mind is completely adaptable, so... Um, that's just what happens to people who lose a sense is the other senses take over. And even, you know, children who are born blind, hmm. their visual cortex starts processing sound. Yeah, right? that's because, fascinating. Because uh, it, it, it's basically sitting there being unused. So the brain, like, just pulls those resources in to start processing sound. And you get, like, a lot of blind people who have really strong synesthesia. Um, even if it's just sort of colors and shapes uh, that go with the sounds that they hear, that they're, they're not completely representational. Um, but there is a kind of logic and processing going on there. 
So yeah, I mean, the brain is super adaptable and, uh, you could probably use, you know, if you lose one part of the brain in an accident, you can probably train another part of the brain to take over that process if it's, you know, not being used for something. So the plasticity is just crazy. I mean, I'm just amazed at what the brain can do, um, especially in kids and developing children. Uh, there's so much, so much stuff going on there. Learning happens so fast in children. It's like a daily thing, like an hourly thing. So it'd be yeah. interesting to like train society or use or like, uh, change society so that everybody's trained to like become what we would can now consider savants or something like that and just make <laughs> like, a, like a whole society of savants or something strange world yeah no i think we need manager types to keep keep everybody on schedule <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe yeah a bunch of savants running around would be uh you know who who's in charge i don't know <laughs> yeah Oh, man, this has been great. I got to run, though. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, thank you very much for coming on. This has been an interesting discussion. And uh, I will let you know when I've uploaded it. I'm just going to edit it and do a couple things. And I'll, if it's cool with you, I'll upload just the whole thing, how it is. That's fine. To your podcast. Cool. And, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to read your Yeah. Um... But yeah, thank you so much, and uh, you've like really inspired me to do uh, deep diving into certain topics, so thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. It was fun. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. See you.
Thank you.